Um, well, thank you, Robert, for having me again, and thank you for allowing me to, to be out and to teach. It's always an honor to do so at St. Luke's. Uh, thanks for coming back this week. Probably way too much information last week, and um, I, I just can't help myself. Um, like that. So thank you for indulging me and, and being understanding and patient. Uh, trying to be, trying to do justice to the topic. I guess, and then the topic is just so immense, and, but I didn't think anyone would sign up for more than two Sundays, so I'm just trying to do the best I can <laughs> under the time that I've been given. Um, hopefully you have a handout in front of you. If you don't, just raise your hand, and there's plenty of copies to go around, and um, we, can, we can get you one. But uh, if you remember from last time, um, we were talking about a street demonstration that brought that broke out in the ancient city of Alexandria, in what we today call Egypt, in, in North Africa, um, because a bunch of, of protesters, uh, maybe they were slipping over into the category of rioters, had gathered outside Bishop Alexander of Alexandria's home, and the chant outside his home. I, I imagine Bishop Alexander hiding in his clothes closet, maybe sucking on his thumb while he's, he's hoping everyone goes away outside his house. But the people gathered outside his house are chanting, there was a time when he was not. There was a time when he was not. And it got louder and louder and louder. And um, if you remember from last time, the reason why they were saying that, there was a time when he was not, the he there uh, was Jesus. The life that was in Jesus, the life that is in Jesus. And they were trying to make the point to the bishop that the life that is in Jesus is not God's own life, but something less than God's own life. Now you say, why would you take time out of your day away from your family, away from your job, away from the exciting things that were going on in Alexandria no doubt, that day, to go over to the bishop's house and chant that slogan. I mean, I, I wish that people cared that much about theology today, because then, you know, Hood Seminary would be uh, in good financial situations, the churches would be full, uh, we'd be uh, doing really well. I don't think anybody cares enough about theology to go over to Bishop Sam Rodman's residence and chant anything in front of his home anymore. But very different back then. People were invested in theology. People cared about it. They were championing, protesting in favor of a theological position that in seminary we call subordinationism. Now, to be subordinate to someone is to be underneath someone, under their authority. In the military, a subordinate is someone of lower rank. And a subordinate has to be obedient and dutiful and recognize and honor the difference between their rank and the rank of a superior. The subordinate, subordinationists taught that Jesus was subordinate to God. He was not equal to God. He was less than God. And so you say, why did the subordinationists care so much 
about Jesus being subordinate to God? And the answer is, in their minds, this was the only way that Christians could remain monotheists, that is, believers in one God. Because they said, if Jesus is God, and the one he called Father is God, then we might have two gods on our hands. And if we've got two gods on our hands, then we probably can no longer claim to be monotheistic. We've crossed over into polytheism. We believe more than one God. We're, we're back to the days of ancient Greece and Zeus and Apollo and Hermes and Aphrodite. We believe in more than one God. So they said, but no, but we come from Abraham. We come from Moses. We come from Israel. And that tradition, those people always affirm belief in one God. So in order to remain in alignment with Judaic faith, with the faith of Israel, with the faith of Moses and Abraham, Jesus must be less than God. There can be no God but God, as Muslims say today. No God but God. Things got so out of hand that Emperor Constantine said, hey, all you bishops, come to my lake house uh, in Nicaea, which is outside that city that we today call Istanbul in Turkey. Back then they called it Constantinople. Gather at my home and we're going to resolve this debate that is broken out between Bishop Alexander and the charismatic teacher Arius, who was championing subordinationism. So 318 bishops traveled to Nicaea. They're locked inside um, Emperor Constantine's lakeside home, and they are charged with resolving this debate. Arius and his supporters probably thought they had a good, pretty good chance of succeeding at, at this council, of having their particular view of Jesus Christ be labeled orthodox, or the correct way to think about the Christian faith, about Jesus. Well, it didn't turn out that way for the Arians. That's what they're called. Followers of Arius were called Arians, not to be confused with white supremacist groups today. Arians were the supporters of Arius. They were probably shocked when they heard the final ruling from the council. And the final ruling from the council said that, no, Bishop Alexander is correct, Arius is wrong. The life that is in Jesus Christ is God's own life and not something less. On the second page of the handout, I've reprinted the original 325 version of the Nicene Creed. It's different from the version of the Creed that we recite in worship. That's the, that's the 381 version, the amended version of the Nicene Creed. But there in that second clause, if you read it over, you see that Arius and subordinationism is being rejected. And Bishop Alexander, in the belief that Jesus Christ, the life that is in Jesus Christ is equal to God, prevails. 
If you look down on that fourth clause, though, the statement is about the Holy Spirit, and we believe in the Holy Ghost, or we believe in the Holy Spirit. Can you get a weaker statement about the Holy Spirit than that? Weak as water, as my grandfather used to say. I mean, that just says nothing about the Holy Spirit, whether the Holy Spirit is equal to God, is part of God's own life, or is somehow less than God. So they didn't really know what to say about the Holy Spirit. So sometimes when you don't know what to say, you just shut your mouth and say as little as possible. And this is what they did here in 325. Um, last time we also talked about the fact that when major decisions come down in our society, for instance, from the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court can decide something, but that doesn't mean that that's an end to the controversy. You know, you have pundits going on cable news and people posting on social media and organizations forming and people protesting, uh, you know, definitive rulings by the Supreme Court. Well, this is no different in the ancient world. The, the Nicene Creed did not definitively end the controversy. People were very upset. Many people were very upset about the ruling in 325. Chiefly, Arius and his followers the subordinationists who believed that Jesus Christ was not equal to God, was not God's own life, but was something less. Um, the Arians said, you have made a colossal error. What you have done is messed up God. We, prior to your act, your ruling, we were pretty clear on who God was, and God is one. And we don't have anything in what I'll call the blue zone, the realm of eternity, other than God the Father. But you've done bishops. You must have drunk too much wine or stayed up too late in this, in this lake house. You, you all lost your mind. Now you've got more than one thing in the blue zone. And so the question the Arians posed is, have you now brought us over into polytheism and away from monotheism if you've got one more than one thing in the blue zone? Other people were upset that the Holy Spirit didn't get more than five sentences. So you have not done justice to the Holy Spirit. If you haven't noticed, the Holy Spirit is a big deal in the New Testament. And it's a crime, it's a shame that you didn't have more to say about this, this one, this Holy Spirit. Um, and then Emperor Constantine, he's not a theologian, he's a politician. And we've got to be fair to say, a lot of these bishops aren't theologians, they're, pol they're politicians as well. And they're hearing from people in their church, and they're hearing people out in the marketplace, and they're hearing people in the imperial court, in the centers of power, and they are questioning the decision that's being made. And so there's, they start to go what the English call wobbly, right? They start to go wobbly. They start to have second thoughts about their decision. They're second guessing themselves. They're saying, oh, did we make a mistake? Should we have gone with Arius rather than Alexander? 
Maybe there was some wisdom in that position. And besides, we hadn't really settled anything. We gave the victory over unambiguously to Alexander. But isn't a good piece of legislation a compromise? Legislation, a compromise bill? You know, everyone, you try to get it so everyone feels like they won something and everybody gives up something. We gave this creed completely over to Alexander and his supporters. Should we have thrown a few bones to Arius so they didn't feel so bad, like they lost so much? I mean, isn't there a way that we can work this out? So between 325 and 381, there's a lot of back and forth going on, a lot of second guessing. And calls are being made to reconvene the council and to come up with a compromise solution that will make the Arians happy, the supporters of Arius, and maybe not be so harsh on them, not, not uh, rule that they can never preach in church, they can never teach in church, they can never be on a church staff, they can never work in the empire. I mean, a bunch of people are out of work and are not able to find jobs now because of what the, the council did in 325. Isn't there a way that we can come together and figure this out with a compromise statement? At the Council of Nicaea in 325, assisting Bishop Alexander is a young gun named Athanasius. Athanasius is the bishop's assistant. He's a special advisor, his special counsel, and truth be told, he's probably much sharper and much more intellectually acute than Alexander. Um, Alexander dies um, soon after the Council of Nicaea, and Athanasius, Alexander's assistant, is appointed to succeed him as Bishop of Alexandria. And in that prestigious post, people are always coming to Athanasius say, let's work something out with the Arians. Let's, let's go back and revise the council so that they are feel now included in the church and they are not totally exiled. And Athanasius says, hell no. We are not compromising with the Arians. Over my dead body, will Arius be reinstated as a minister in my city? We cannot compromise with the Arians, said Athanasius, because what's at stake is not um, political consensus. What's at stake is not law and order and stability in the empire. What's at stake is nothing less than the gospel, the meaning of the gospel of Jesus Christ itself. And Athanasius says, there's no way I'm compromising on this. Well, sometimes when you don't play ball, anybody ever been in a work situation, a community meeting, maybe a family meeting when you were unwilling to play ball and to get along, to go along? What happens to people like that? Well, they oftentimes might find themselves alienated and isolated, 
attacked. Uh, you know, people who are willing to compromise uh, tend to be successful in life and tend to get along. Well, Athanasius didn't care about that. And as a result, he was exiled five times between 325 and 381. Went into exile five times. They would send him to the worst possible outposts in the Roman Empire. At the time, Germany was the worst place that you could be assigned to if you were a Roman imperial officer or a soldier. And they sent him out to Germany to try to uh, teach him a lesson. But something would happen to him in exile. He would just dig in and become more steadfast and resolute in his position while he was exiled. He refused to learn his lesson. So the exile helped harden his position rather than soften it. Um, he wrote one of the greatest treatises in the history of Christian theology. And because it's great, just because I say it's great doesn't mean he's right. But it was, it's great because it's a masterpiece. And if you go to seminary, you will likely be assigned. Do you think, Tom and Robert, are you still required to read the Athanasius' On the Incarnation? I hope so, because you should. Uh, in this masterwork, he says, Alexander is right and Arius is wrong because Arius is Jesus cannot save you. If Jesus is not God, if Jesus is less than God, then don't look to this guy for salvation. Don't look to this guy for eternal life. At best, Arius' Jesus can provide you with some good moral information on how to live your life. He can help you maybe interpret the Mosaic Law. He can give you some good codes of conduct to live by. But if what you are seeking is eternal life, if what you are seeking is salvation from sin and death, you got to go with Alexander's Jesus. Because he's the only one that has the qualifications and the qualities to do, fulfill the job, to comply with the job description. Secondly, Arius, or excuse me, Athanasius argues, do you believe that when you encounter Jesus, the Father is being revealed to you? That is, does Jesus reveal God to humanity? And most Christians at the time said, well, yeah, I believe that when I encounter Jesus, when I see the face of Jesus, I am seeing the face of God. I am getting the full revelation of God in the person of Jesus Christ. And Athanasius says, okay then, if you believe that, can something or someone that is less than God reveal God? No. In order to be the revelation of God, that revelation must be equal to God, must be God's own life. Because if it's something less, it's not going to fully reveal God to you. Do a lot of good things for you, but reveal God, make God known, only God can do that. 
And if a revelation of God does that, that revelation itself must be God. So this is the reasoning that Athanasius deploys in this treatise that gets the church to sit, stiffen its spine. To say, no, we, we did make a good decision. We were right in 325 to reject Arius. And Athanasius helped them to uh, have confidence in that decision. Well, what about the Holy Spirit? Do we need to add some things to that clause from 325? Well, Basil of Caesarea, an ancient theologian, I'm on the fifth page of the handout now, thought, yeah, the Holy Spirit deserves better. And he devoted his whole life to making the case that not only is the life that was in Jesus, that is in Jesus, God's own life, but he said, the life that is the Holy Spirit is God's own life, and not something less. So he wrote uh, a treatise appropriately titled On the Holy Spirit. I like these titles. They, they don't mess around. They just tell you what, what it's about. You don't have to guess. On the Holy Spirit. So this is another staple of a seminary education that you need to read, especially if you're uh, studying the history of Christian theology. He says the Holy Spirit must be God too. Because, he says, at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, that's chapter 28, verse 19, Jesus tells his disciples, go and baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Baptism, according to Basil, is what saves you and if when you're baptized, you are being baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, then all three of those persons being named there have to be fully God. That was his, one of his uh, reasons, rationales. It was called the argument from baptism, or the argument from worship. This is what we do, this is what we practice in the church. And if we listen to ourselves and what we say when we're baptizing persons, we are pointing to the divinity of the Holy Spirit. And if we're not prepared to follow through with what we're doing, what we say we're doing in worship, then we need to uh, reformulate the baptismal covenant, reword it, take the Holy Spirit out, perhaps. Well can't do that because Jesus said to do that in this name. So uh, Basil then convinces a lot of people, at least in the 4th century, that the Holy Spirit needs to be added to the blue zone. He also argued from Christian experience. He told his readers in, who were reading this treatise, he said, Think about your own experience of the Christian faith. Um, how is it that you are in connection with Jesus Christ? Well, Jesus Christ, according to the New Testament, has ascended to heaven. He's not walking around Galilee anymore. He's not walking around Fulton Heights. He doesn't come ring your doorbell, knock on your door, and say, hey, I'm Jesus, I want to be in a relationship with you. 
right? If you started to say that some guy, if some guy pretended to be that, or if you said that some guy was doing that, they'd probably lock you up. They'd think you lost your mind. Well, he said that it only makes sense, or it only is um, logically possible that you could be in relationship with an ascended being who's now in heaven, is no longer walking the earth, but people are saying that they have a, are in communion with this life. How is that possible? Well, God must construct a bridge between us and this ascended life. We can't fly up to heaven, at least not yet. But if we say that we are in contact with this person prior to our death, there must be something that's facilitating that relationship. And what can bridge the gap between time and eternity, between heaven and earth, between creation and God? Whatever that bridge is, we can't construct it from our side of the equation and build over to God. We tried to do that with the Tower of Babel. Right? And God said, no way. We can't go visit heaven like the way Dorothy and the lion and the tin man tried to go visit Oz. Right? God has to bridge the gap from God's side of the equation. And the way that God does this, says Basil, is through the Holy Spirit. It's God coming in person, visiting you, communing with you, doing, illuminating the internal part of yourself and putting you in connection with this risen, ascended person. And if the Holy Spirit is doing this work, if you feel in your spiritual life that that is happening to you, then the Holy Spirit cannot be less than God. It must be God's own life, says Basil. So, you thought Alexander messed up God? Now Basil really messed up God, because now we've got, we don't have two things in the, in the blue zone. Now you've got three things in the blue zone. Oh, my God. And Arius and his supporters are standing on the sidelines saying, yep, we told you. We told you that this was what was going to happen. You should have gone with us, and you never would have, would have had a God problem. But you went up there, and you monkeyed around in the blue zone, and now you've got to lie in this bed that you made for yourself theologically. So what the heck is going on in the blue zone? This is the question now facing the church. And this, I'm looking at this handout now. Well, one possible interpretation could be, well, it was nice being monotheistic, but it's time to jump ship. Maybe we'll be tritheists. We'll believe in three gods. You know, in a way we'll be like um, the ancient Greeks and their mythology. Zeus and Apollo and Hermes, you know, we'll, we'll just substitute those three people for the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And uh, we'll have to remove the Old Testament from our few Bibles. We won't read from that text anymore because that, that's a different theology than us. We, we've crossed over to tritheism, so why not? Let's make the leap. Well, they said, that's too radical, said most of the church. People have learned to like the Old Testament. The New Testament itself 
is pointing to the connection between itself and the Old Testament. Jesus himself is a Jew, and he's not trying to disrupt any, any of the fundamental theology of ancient Israel. So tritheism as an option is eliminated. It's off the board. Another group of Christians, uh, they were uh, being suspected of being heretics. They were strange, but they said, hey, we've got an ancient view that can really come in handy right now, and their view was called modalism. And they could say, you know, we have one God, God the Father, who dresses up in different guises or costumes when uh, this one God the Father visits creation. Sometimes he dresses up as Jesus Christ. And sometimes he dresses up as the Holy Spirit. But one God coming down and visiting us in different appearances or guises. Said, not bad. Blue Zone is still has one person in it. We're still monotheistic. Why can't we go with that solution? Well, people pointed out to the modalists, we've been telling you this for a long time. I know you're always looking to have your chance to get rehabilitated, but as we told you from the very beginning, when you read the New Testament, there appears to be dialogues, true dialogues going on between Jesus and the one he called Father. Jesus ain't talking to himself. He seems to be talking, referring to someone that's not himself, someone that's other, someone that's different. And Jesus at the end says, you know, I'm going to go away, but I'm going to send someone else to you. The Advocate, the Holy Spirit. Jesus doesn't say, and I'm going to send myself uh, because I'm going to be dressed up in different costume. I'll look like the Holy Spirit, but it's really me. No, it, it's something that's not Jesus, something that's not God the Father. So the New Testament itself is suggesting that these three things are not the same. It's not God the Father assuming a different voice or assuming a different guise. There's actual three distinct different things going on in the blue zone. And boy, everyone said, God, you guys make it so hard. You make it so hard. How can we communicate this faith to any new convert? Right? They'll just be scratching their heads and say, God, I have to have a, a five on the AP exam just to get in this church. Why does theology have to be so hard? Can't we make it easier? And the answer is no. We can't make it easier. The gospel itself is demanding some rigorous intellectual work on our part. And we need to rise to the challenge and honor the complexity of what the New Testament is saying about God. Mark, you got it. Oh, okay. And you can ask questions at any time. So you've got, if you want to put your hand up, uh, go ahead. So the church now needs some help with the blue zone. And to the rescue come 
the persons in the history of Christian theology that we call the two Gregories. The two Gregories, fourth century theologians. Uh, the first one that we'll discuss is a guy named Gregory of Nyssa. Gregory is the younger brother of Basil, the Holy Spirit guy. Um, he tries to work out how Christians are not believers in three gods. How we can affirm belief in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit and still be monotheists. Um, one of the uh, reasons or arguments or the cases that he make is, makes is in his writings. He says, the persons of the Trinity, and he was using that term at the time, said the persons of the Trinity never cut solo albums. They never cut solo albums. What if Paul McCartney never went and had a solo career? John Lennon never had a solo career. George Harrison never had a solo career. God wishes that Ringo Starr never released a solo album because it was none of them were ever any good. But what if the Beatles always stayed together? They never broke up. They never did their own thing. They always traveled together on tour, just like the old days in the early 60s. Right? They never drifted apart. The band always stayed together. Well, if, if that's how you like your rock and roll bands, Gregory Miss says you're really going to like God because God never cuts solo deals. God never makes a solo record. When God goes somewhere, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are always along for the ride. And they're always along for the ride because they are fully God. So he says, you know, when God creates, it's not just God the Father that creates. The Son and the Spirit are involved in the act of creation too. Because if God the Father said, oh, all right, boys, you sit this one out, I'm going to take the lead on this. If God were able to, if the Father were able to do that, do something without the other two, then we'd be tritheists. Then we'd have gods that were doing separate missions independently of one another. But because we're monotheists, when God creates, all three persons who are God together are involved in creation. We attribute the work of redemption with the second person of the Trinity, with Jesus. But when God does something for us, namely redemption, all three persons are involved in that activity, says Gregory of Nyssa. Uh, you feel inspired, something is being illuminated within you, and you feel the power of the presence of the Holy Spirit. Episcopalians can feel this, it's okay. You know, it's not just the Pentecostals and the Methodists that can feel like this. Episcopalians can feel this too. But when you feel that, or if you feel that, you're not just encountering the Holy Spirit in isolation, says Gregory Nyssa. You are encountering at the same time God the Father and God the Son. You are brought up into communion with all three. 
They never cut solo records, said Gregory Nyssa. The second Gregory, the last page on the handout, Gregory of Nazianzus. Um, I thought he was always thought he was an interesting guy. Brilliant, brilliant person. And they were always trying to make him a bishop and an administrator. And every time he became a bishop, he just fell on his face spectacularly because he had no administrative gifts. <laughs> couldn't work with the payroll, couldn't work with the budget, couldn't form a committee, didn't show up to his own meetings. I mean, he was just a total disaster. But one thing he could do was think theologically, and he could write compelling theology. And he said, you know, stop making me bishop. I just want to serve a little congregation in Cappadocia and just let me preach and be happy. And he got his wish, and he started preaching uh, like nobody's business. And when we read Gregory of Nazianzus today in seminary, we are reading transcripts of the sermons that he gave at his little church because his favorite thing to preach about was the Trinity. And so we're reading sermons of his, and, and they're, they're brilliant. They're unbelievable. Gregory of Nazianzus' great insight, and it's one of the reasons why people still study him today, and people study him today who are not theologians, psychologists have taken interest in Gregory of Nazianzus because in the ancient world, in the fourth century, he is identifying something that contemporary psychology uh, likes to talk about and is interested in today. And that is the notion that persons are formed through relationships. Um, especially in the West, uh, we like to think of ourselves as autonomous, self-sufficient, fully formed persons who then go out into the world and then force the world to deal with us on our own terms. And we might think, you know, if you don't like me, tough. This is who I am. Well, psychologists say you might think that you can go through life like that, but it's not true. Um, there's not a hard wall you know, that encapsulates ourselves, that nothing can penetrate. What's around us is more like a screen door. Influences are blowing in and out of us all the time, and the biggest influences in our life are the people with whom we are in relationship. Parents, grandparents, spouses, siblings, friends, neighbors, coworkers, teachers, coaches, mentors. People, the people with whom we are in relationship make us who we are. You take away any of those formative relationships and you are not the same person today. Relationships make you who you are. You receive your identity from other people. And people can influence us, you know, God knows, from, for good and for bad. But even if we take away a bad relationship that we've had with a parent, boyfriend or girlfriend, a spouse, take that relationship out of the equation and we are not the same people we are today. 
every relationship we have has been an essential building block that shapes and makes us, us. Gregory came on to this insight well before modern psychology when he's talking about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He said, you know why it's not three gods? Because all three persons of the Trinity need one another to be who they are. The Father cannot be the Father without the Son. I mean, to say that you're a father without a son, that, that's, that defies logic. You need the Son to be the Father. Well, if you're going to be the Son, you better have a father. They receive their identity through their relationship with one another. And then the Holy Spirit, uh, the fourth century theologian Augustine famously said, the Holy Spirit is the love that exists between the Father and the Son. The love that is formed, is generated by that relationship, that's the Holy Spirit. And what makes the Holy Spirit holy is the fact that it is, it receives its identity from the relationship that exists between the Father and the Son. So Nancy Enza said, take any of those three persons out of the equation and God is not God. They can't be who they are apart from one another. They give each other their identity. So when we say God, we don't mean Big Daddy up in the sky, sitting in the armchair, reading the paper. We're talking about a dynamic relationship that exists between three persons. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They never cut solo records. They never go out on their own. They're always together. And they need one another to be who they are. That's what Christians mean when they say God. God is a dynamic community of three persons. It's not three gods. It's not one God dressing up in, in different guises, assuming different voices. That is who God is. Big question I have today when I teach this doctrine in the seminary is whether the church needs this doctrine any longer. Is it something that the ancient world needed? Is it something that the ancient world worked out and applied to them? But it does, it is, is it something that no longer applies to us today? Do we need this? Is it important that we think in Trinitarian terms about God? The answer is, well, it probably depends on how you think about Christianity and your experience of the Christian faith. If what you're looking for when you go to church is just some information on how to be a good person, how to live a good moral life, um, you probably don't need the doctrine of the Trinity. If Jesus is just a prophet, is just a messenger from God, you know, like Moses, like any of the Hebrew prophets, uh, you don't you probably need Jesus to be God for you. He can probably be less than God. And if you don't need Jesus to be God, if Jesus can be less than God, then you probably don't need the doctrine of the Trinity. It's a relic from the past. It's a fourth century, uh, interesting, 
piece of intellectual history. If, however, your approach to Christianity is like Athanasius's, is like Alexander's, it's like Basil's, it's like the two Gregory's, and if when you come to church, you are expecting, you are anticipating to enter into deep communion with God, if you are interested in participating in the divine life, in worship, in the church, then you probably are going to need to think about God in terms that are very similar, if not exact, to the Trinity. Because if Jesus Christ... That's the, that's the bell. Let me just finish real quickly. Because if Jesus Christ, if your experience of Jesus Christ is that he is connecting you into deep communion with God, if, if there's a part of you that's being transformed in a radical way, if you're being rewired to become a new creation, to become different than you were before, so radical, uh, to the extent so radical that it, it's beyond the work of a psychologist or a therapist or a life coach, if something radically is happening to you and you are becoming transformed into what Paul called a new creation, through your connection with this guy, Jesus Christ, and your connection with this thing called the Holy Spirit, then you probably need Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit to be God's own life. Or that's the accurate description of who or what you are encountering when these things happen to you in worship, in your prayer life, as you're walking along the street in your neighborhood. You, tease, you figure out the implications of the theology that's operating behind that experience, particular experience of the Christian faith. And by gosh, you're going to come close to something that Gregory, the two Gregories, Basil and Athanasius and Alexander, worked out so long ago in the fourth century. Thank you. I appreciate your attention. And uh, enjoy the